Hi, I'm Lindsay Boomershine, brand manager of High Five Gear. H5G has thousands of designs to choose from and no hidden artwork fees. How awesome is that? Have your jersey tell your story. Order online at www.high5gear.com today. Add H5G into your wardrobe and show off your individuality. Use code ABOVE180 at checkout for $20 off any H5G style. Order today and enjoy high5gear.com. Bowling this month is bowling's trusted technical resource that's relied upon by thousands of serious bowlers, pro shop operators, and professional coaches. From independent ball reviews to great instructional articles on all facets of our sport, you'll find it all at bowlingthismonth.com. For less than the price of a cup of coffee per month, you can have online access to Bowling This Month's premium technical bowling content that will help you improve your game. Bowling This Month is so confident you'll be satisfied, they're offering a 14-day money-back guarantee to all subscribers. Check out BowlingThisMonth.com and sign up today. Tim Berg is ready to hit the lanes, approaching the issues that you, the bowler, want to know. From the latest equipment reviews, coaching, to drilling layouts, and the stars of the PBA. Now, here's your host, Tim Berg. Joining me in the Above180.com podcast is Jeff Riggles. Jeff is the owner-operator of 11thFrame.com. He's also an all-around swell guy. Jeff was inducted into the USBC Hall of Fame back in 2011. Jeff, it's Tim Berg here. Thank you for joining me today. Happy to be here, Tim, always. All right, Jeff. Well, I thought as we end the year, wrap up 2020, which everyone is more than ready to get this year over with, I thought we'd sit down and <laughs> chat about some of the, the big bowling stories, the stories that bowlers were talking about. And we're only going to pick five, and we're going to go down from five all the way down to the number one story, which isn't much of a spoiler to everyone out there. But but other stuff in the sport <laughs> did happen that affected the sport and will affect the sport, I think, for years to come. Sure. Absolutely. You know, it's hard to believe on some of this as we, as I did some research that there was anything but the pandemic, but uh, there certainly was. All right. So for number five, we both thought that world bowling strings, the, the string craze that's going on overseas, and even there was a tournament here. That's our number five story that you're keeping an eye on, 11thframe.com. You did a couple stories on that as well. And I, I guess for someone who hasn't maybe seen much about this can you briefly explain what it is and 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 even maybe how it got started briefly well um the uh the thing about strings is it's a different sort of pin setter um and it's much easier to operate you don't even need a trained mechanic um and it's much less expensive uses much much less energy so going forward um i think it's going to be a big thing just purely from the economics of it, and perhaps not so much in the U.S. and the competitive sector, but across the globe, world bowling, I think probably the way reading between the lines, they see this as a way to get bowling into countries where there's no way to have traditional pin setters. They're too expensive. you got to have the trained mechanics, whereas you can get a string set up and maybe get people started on the game. Um, the controversy comes in, in in that it's not exactly the same as bowling on uh, traditional pin setters, which are called pre-fall. And that's where uh, the rub is, sort of. And that's where USBC has pushed back upon world bowling. World bowling has made it so any federation can certify strings bowling. And there are, I believe right now, or was, there may be more now, there were three countries. I think it was Australia, Canada, and the United Kingdom, I think, were all... Uh, their federations were certifying uh, strings bowling. And uh, the summer in Florida, long story short, there was a couple of tournaments on one weekend that um, the Cubica AMF folks uh, who are partnered with World Bowling put on. A lot of big names there, PBA, Hall of Famers and that. And it was pretty interesting to see some of that and then write about it. Um, the pins fall different. There's no doubt about that. But the scoring difference was not high. So um, <clears throat> it's a different it's hard to see. You have to really watch it to understand it. I've never bowled on it personally. I've just watched it, but it, it is different. Um, and a lot of people who are, you know, traditionalists don't like it, but I think, um, as one, as one PBA touring pro off, not off the record, but, but not for attribution told me if you put up enough money, I'll bowl on 
milk bottles, you know, that, that sort of thing. And so I think basically there's going to be times where we have to decide as bowlers, or at least I used to be, I shouldn't say we, I'm not really a bowler anymore. Um, but you have to decide, are you going to just compete? And if you're head to head against other bowlers on the same machines, you know, what's the difference sort of, you know, deal with it. You know, I grew up with hard rubber balls, plastic balls, wood lanes, that sort of thing. And the bowling I do now, or in my later years now is very little to do really with the bowling I did growing up. It's almost like as much difference as strings to traditional pin setters. And I think people are just going to have to adjust. And the big rub for USBC is averages and how are they going to deal with that? But for world bowling, that's not really an issue because their competitions are all scratch. So they don't really, you know, that's not really anything they're worried about. And they're just throwing it out to the Federation saying, look, go ahead and do this if you can. And then I guess figure out the details. But I, as far as I know, world bowling doesn't have any handicap competitions. So for them, it's not really a big deal. If they hold an international competition and invite all the national teams to it, you know, they're all going to be bowling on the same thing. Just like if you're all bowling on synthetics versus wood or whatever it might be. And, you know, I think we're just all going to have to, to learn to deal with it or just don't bowl and USBC's, to get it in certified in the U.S. with with handicap competition, so really for all competition, they're going to have to run some serious studies, which they said they would, to to try and get a good handle on the differential and perhaps make it so that averages can be used on both things. The one thing that I was doing some research on this topic is it it seemed that from what I was reading is that people with a uh, little less rev rate, the carry percentage seemed to be a little bit lower. They weren't weren't getting as many many uh many light hits and the messenger hits weren't were fewer and further between than what they were on a normal basis so that could be interesting as well i'd be curious you know out of the people at bold in florida some of the names i'm seeing they're all you know can all strap on the ball pretty good so i'm i'm curious yep. from a straight person you know a, a tweener's perspective or even a lower rev person's perspective how things would look on, on these pins. And I'd love to, I'd love to try it, you know, um, myself. Yeah. And, and it sounds like Cubica has a big hand in this too. Cubica AMF is working big. So, so if it's for them, they're going to be pushing this. You would think to get centers across in the world, you know, across the world to, to try this and at least add a couple lanes and see, see how it is. Even if it's stateside here, maybe a novelty type thing where you can go, you know, oh, let's go bowl on that pair and see how it is. Yeah, there are a lot of, um, I don't know, a lot may be overreaching, but there are string pin setter uh, centers for recreation uh, in the country in various places, these round ones and some of those things. But my understanding is Bolero has some string <clears throat> string pin setter uh, setups in some places. So who knows, maybe we'll see a Cubica AMF Bolero PBA exhibition type event uh, as a demonstration with World Bowling or something that, could be on TV. I'm, I, I know nothing about that being in the works. Don't get me, don't overreach here. I'm just speculating on where we could see this as the world moves forward and, and, and what might come of it. And like, I think you're hundred percent right. Ball speed seems to be a key to get these pins to, you know, bounce around and stuff. And the big thing people don't like is the strings. Like you might have a shot that would leave a ringing 10 and the string will take out the 10 pin, not the pin, the string will take it out. But you know, I mean, there's less messengers supposedly. So, you know, things balance out sort of, it's just, it's not, I'm not going to be one who says it's good or bad. I'm going to say it's different and everyone can make their own choice. What's good and bad. Believe me though, if they throw up 250 grand with a hundred grand first prize and have some sort of world bowling or PBA event, you know, as well as I do that the best in the world are going to show up because they're there to make money. Exactly. And then regarding the USBC and doing their research, this is a, I mean, on their radar, it's it's there, but I mean, on their priority list, I would say this is like a, a two, three-year thing oh, in the works. Yeah. Is that what we're thinking, oh, a yeah. five-year thing? For sure. Yeah, I think a long time because they have obviously way more important things to worry about. And it takes, how long did it take for Twister Pins? That was like two full seasons of tests, I think, before they approved Twister Pins based on the scoring differentials and their rules. So it's not something that's going to happen anytime soon. And like I said, it's not so much for scratch competition because you're all bowling on the same thing. It's somebody, if they certify it, somebody can have a strings average and somebody can have a, a regular traditional pin setter average. And 
can those things be equated and used to set up divisions at the open championships or at your state tournament or how much handicap you get in some tournament. That is the big thing for most bowling, not the scratch bowling. And that's why USBC has is totally in the right in my mind to go slow on this and make sure they do their due diligence. So I got, I have no complaints whatsoever with how USBC is handling. All right. And, and number four topic of the year back in 2020, we talk about urethane balls and you, you had some great pieces regarding the urethane ball. And a lot of this goes back to the purple hammer and some of the stuff that was done at the beginning of the year. This was all pre pandemic uh, reporting that was done by the USBC and, and ball testing and the hardness testing. And, and, um, and that was just one of those things that again, was it was a big topic and, and even for bowlers, it could have been what they would consider a big distraction when they're out there just trying to bowl for a major mm-hmm. championship. Yeah, this this I think was totally going to be the story of the year prior to um, COVID nineteen. Without a doubt, in my mind, I saw this as the story of the year. We could spend a whole show on this, and I'll try to be you know cliff notes for people to remind them. This all came about because there was a lot of talk that the purple hammers were people were tricking them up, doing something to them, or they were made illegal or whatever. There was a lot of simmering um, ill will among some of the players on tour, um, not necessarily against each other, but just about the ball and what was going on. And there were no answers. And, you know, I heard rumblings when, and as it turned out, USBC came up with one of their certified durometers. Uh, Tom Clark came down and it was during the summer swing in Aurora they went into the ball truck in the middle of the night and checked all the balls for hardness with a certified durometer. And basically they didn't find any problems with them. Um, the ones that were undrilled just sitting in the boxes. So it was like, okay, no story, but it just, it kept simmering and it all came to a, to a head when Sean Rash made reference to it during a uh, flow bowling telecast in January on a, on a match play night. And, um, that gave me sort of an end to say, okay, I'm going to write about this because, here it's on the record because I'd had people messaging me touring players and that who refused to say anything on the record. And I can't really do anything with that without having information. You know, Tom had said, there's nothing to this, you know, and he wasn't lying to me when he said that because they did these tests. He wouldn't talk about that, but said there's nothing to it because they didn't find anything. Long story short, I started working on this big story. J.R. Raymond got on it after that and did some YouTubes about it. And people started like testing the balls with their own durometers. And it long, you know, in, it led to after my huge story got published, I don't know, I'm, it might've been coincidence, but it might've pushed USBC. They announced that they were going to test all urethane balls at the U S open, not just the purple hammers. And they found um, in total 109 of the 300 urethane balls they tested from all companies tested under the 72 limit. But because of the way durometers variance in the field, the real number to worry about was 68. And there were only two purple hammers that ended up falling under 68. There were no other balls. So out of these 300 balls, only two balls were actually illegal by the way the rules enforced. And they were just barely illegal. And they had a thing where more had been under that, but they were allowed to be set for overnight, like in the old days of the yellow dots and that when I was first bowling you would get time to let it resume to room temperature, et cetera, and then you'd retest it. So there were a few more that were under the 68, but according to the rule, once they were allowed to sit, only two came up under. One was Jacob Buttrips, um, and uh, those balls then were removed for good, forever. Um, And what they ended up finding out is that it wasn't that they were, you know, anyone was doing anything to them. It was something to do with use, like friction going down the lane heats them up or the oils, the fancy oils um, altering the cover stock or whatever, making it a little bit softer. So the manufacturing spec would be 72 and balls would be made legal and they would be used on over time become illegal um, barely or, and then they would come back up. So basically it really became, and there were a lot of other company balls that were under the 72, but not under the 68. So this wasn't just, it turned out that it wasn't just a purple hammer story. So basically what was a story became sort of a non-story. And if you recall, they were going to do more tests at the U S open or USBC masters that got canceled. And they were, because there were so many competitors, they were allowing people to do forward tests at the world series. And, um, it included resin balls. They found no resin balls under 72. 
Then the pandemic hits. There is no USB-C masters. There was no more testing. But essentially, from everything they found, USB-C decided, one, no issue with resin balls at all. Two, what's happening with the urethanes is really not making them illegal other than a couple balls. It's not that big a deal. It's not anything nefarious being done by anyone. Basically, it became a non-story. It kind of just went away. And there are some questions exactly what's going on that there could be perhaps some scientific testing. I did a follow-up story with Neil Stremel, who's not really with anyone anymore. So he spoke freely and speculated, you know, he doesn't know. He said, we need more data. We need more tests. Well, if they, they have to do some more of those, if they really want to find out what makes them get softer with use and stuff and really nail that down. But <clears throat> excuse me, it really doesn't matter. Basically it's an, it turned out to be much of a non-story. And I think, me sort of Sean and then me sort of pushing it out there. Tom might not have liked that. Chad might not have liked that, but in the long run, I think it did good for bowling because it took what was a negative thing underneath among players and rumors and against um, EBI then Brunswick. And it kind of made that all go away. So I think in the long run, bowling benefited from the kerfuffle and all the crap that went on for maybe a month. So I think we all got good out of what was, a bad situation being ended, if if that made any sense. Well, it certainly did. And then, if I if I remember correctly, I feel like the the, the two that were one of Jacobs, at least that purple hammer that ended up being just below sixty eight, was one of the older purple hammers as well. So as right. as the new ones are coming out, they were all good. And I was thinking, kind of as as those older ones are are kind of as they wear out, just like any bowling ball does, frankly. They're, they're out of commission yep. anyways. It doesn't matter if, it, if it's illegal or barely illegal or just above. It, it stops hitting and they'll stop using it. Yes, absolutely. And one of the things they thought is that over time they may become slightly softer. So maybe ones made now in three years might be down to around that 68. But the difference in a ball hooking between 69 and 68 or 70 and 69 is not really that significant. And if there's any trick to the purple hammer, my theorem is that it might be in maybe an additive in there or something, which wouldn't be illegal. You know, everybody can has their proprietary and how they make the cover stocks. And if it passes the oil cover stock absorption test, it's legal and it and passes all the core tests and all that. So if, if EBI and now Brunswick has a little trick with them, well, you know, I'm a storm guy, but more power to EBI for coming up with that, you know, just like the guys that came up with the Excalibur. Not that it's anything like that, but, you know, if that ball's a little bit better than some of the other urethanes, theoretically, it seems to be that it's something, you know, Ebonite and Mount Brunswick did. So, heck, you just got to, you know, tip your cap to him, I guess. Well, and and you mentioned Jacob Buttruff, and we did a few times. He was under a – had to just be being – all the dispersions and everything thrown at him for being oh, a cheater yeah. and everything going on with him. So he has to feel somewhat vindicated. And as you point out in one of your stories too, he won before, before the purple hammer. It wasn't like this ball is everything he won with. He won before yep. he was yep. with, uh, you know, before he made the switch to EBI and now Brunswick. Yep. He had two PBA tour titles when he was with global 900 staff and, um, or 900 global, pardon me. And and the year that he set the record with the nine PBA regional titles in one year, that was when he was with 900 Global. So the whole idea that Jacob's some, you know, creature or creation of the Purple Hammer is couldn't be more wrong. And, uh, you know, he won one tournament last year throwing resin, was it on both lanes or on one of the lanes on TV? So, you know, I mean, he's his trick is not the bowling ball. His trick is that ridiculous risk that he has, the hypermobility and what he can do to a a ball because of that. So <laughs> it's a natural advantage that he has, if anything. As we head into 2021, why not go to h5gbrands.com and pick out some new bowling gear? High Five has all your best and greatest dye supplemented jerseys, no hidden artwork fees, thousands of designs to choose from. They also have your PBA replica jerseys you can order, PBA league jerseys, PBA junior merchandise, everything you need all at your fingertips, h5gbrands.com. Please mention promo code ABOVE180. That will get you $20 off your order. Promo code ABOVE180 will get you $20 off that order. Get your stuff ordered for 2021 as everyone starts heading to tournaments. You have your city, your state. Hopefully, keeping our fingers crossed, there will be a a USBC Open Championships, both men and women this year. But get your jersey so your team looks sharp. Again, check everything out at h5gbrands.com. Also, bowlingthismonth.com. 
Bowling's best and most comprehensive technical resource all at your fingertips. Also seeing articles regarding exercising. Lots of great stuff there. Your ball reviews down to your left-hand side. Everything you need all at your fingertips. Again, check out bowlingthismonth.com. All right, Jeff uh, Riggles here joining me on the Above180.com podcast. For more on Jeff, check out 11thframe.com, all of his his daily writings there on everything regarding to bowling. Uh, Jeff, number three, we, we kind of lumped this one as just some of the USBC decisions that were made, and this is, of course, non-pandemic related, but there was a lot of things that happened at the USBC, you know, bringing back Team Challenge in 2021, the Open Championships, we get, we got some news from that as of late regarding how that is working. So let's really begin with those first two topics regarding some of the things going on down in Arlington, Texas. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously the, the two, the big thing is, you know, they continue to have all the tournaments uh, postponed. And then just, just last week, we had the news that the uh, Open Championships in 2021 will not start until May which is kind of what I, I was predicting on May to August timeline months ago, just based on my own work as a journalist with the Wisconsin State Journal and Lee Enterprises, uh, following and syndicating all these stories about the, uh, the, the pandemic and, and, you know, reading about the vaccines and things every day and the timelines out there. I just saw as it was developing that that made much more sense. And I'm really hopeful that if the logistics work out good, and the Johnson & Johnson vaccine gets approved in February, like it sounds like, which is a one-shot one, not two like the Moderna and Pfizer, and it's one that doesn't need any special treatment. You can just store it like all the other old-time vaccines. Boom, we're going to have people just, you know, anybody that, but hopefully by May, anyone in America that wants a vaccine somewhere April, May, will be able to get it. And hopefully most people will. And then, you know, the Open Championship should go off fine. The Women's Championship should go off fine. Junior Gold, you know, the PBA 50 Tour, the whatever's going to be in the PBA Tour after the spring. The world by next fall, I'm very confident or very hopeful that we're going to be back to almost normal. And uh, so I think the Open Championships will be, you know, fine that way. They'll, we'll still be in some measures because they have to figure out if it just, if the vaccines just prevent disease, which is what we really need. But if they don't prevent you from getting asymptomatically infected where you could still spread it, that's why they're talking about still carrying on with some social distancing and uh, masks and all that sort of stuff until herd, you know, vaccine herd immunity really knocks it out and, and it disappears basically and the pandemic's over. Once we reach that, then we can go back to total normalcy. But, you know, that's why we're going to have this interim period where we're going to bowl with one team on a pair at the Open Championships and we'll be wearing masks. I mean, that's just how it's going to be because, you don't want to be the person who gets vaccinated, but you're asymptomatically infected. You don't even know it, but you can spread it to somebody who might be a cancer patient and can't get, um, you know, vaccinated because their immune system is all messed up from the chemotherapy and that, and you could kill them. That's what this is about when some of this is going to continue. And when this, when the, the spread is, the cases are down to very minimal because most people are vaccinated, then we'll be back to complete normal. I would hopefully that will be the, the state of the country and the world sometime in, in later in 2021. We'll have football stadiums full of people again and and et cetera. And we'll be back, be back to normal. And also next fall, um, kind of a, a story that didn't get a lot of uh, a lot of run because it kind of happened here a couple months ago and it was sort of obscured by us. But this team challenge coming back um, and, and that to me, or I forget what they're calling it. Now, I don't have that note in front of me. USBC people have been asking for this for years and they've got some measures to try and balance the teams and man, that's going to be fun. If it happens now, I am for me personally, I bowled in the old days in the national finals and a lot of regional ones. And it was so much fun. Uh, the stack teams and the bracket, you know, that kind of ruined it. Yes. Okay. But when it was good, it was really fun. And for this to come back and, and start again and, you know, push team bowling and let other people, young people today enjoy that, man, it's going to be fun. I'll go, I'm not going to bowl. I'm almost 60, but I'll go and watch some if it's around my area and, and I'll enjoy it if it's on, you know, CBS sports network or whatever. I mean, I, I you got to like that, don't you, Tim? I mean, you're a bowling fan, even if you're not going to compete. Those team challenges were fun, weren't they? They were, exactly. And um, and, and I can't remember if we were talking, I did, I did an interview with Steve when we had, um, 
we had Billy Murphy on uh, from Wichita, a coach there at Newman, and we were talking, and they were talking about getting a team together. And just hear, you can hear like between him and Steve and just the camaraderie of these guys when you, you bring up those tournaments and they remember, and Steve will bring up those World Team Challenge events and stuff. And, yeah, and it, it, is, um, it is something I will be looking forward to. Now, regarding the Open Championships, seems to me like it's a pretty ambitious schedule the way they have it set up, even with people bowling you know, one team on a pair and moving things down, you know, downstairs to bowl your doubles and singles at the, at the, you know, at the center and the stadium is holding team event, but that seems to be very, uh, very ambitious. And they're still saying if they want to extend, they can still get close to that 11,000 team threshold. I mean, and if they keep it to where it's at just around 9,300, I mean, are you thinking from what you're hearing are, are, are teams going to be signing up and, and people going to be running out to Vegas starting in May again? Well, I think that there there is a cadre of bowlers who have bowled through this, who don't care. Um, I call them the DGAFs, and we won't use that on your podcast, but you can figure it out. And more power to them. They might be young and healthy and not really care. They're willing to take their chances to bowl or they need to bowl to make money. And they're keeping bowling centers open where – Governments allow them to be open, and I, you know, more power to them. Uh, uh, I'm not going to do that for the reasons I've explained about, um, you know, Susie, my girlfriend, taking care of her very health compromised 80 year old dad. So we've been hunkered down. I haven't touched the ball since March. As soon as I'm vaccinated, I'm going to be back out in the lanes, and I'll be bowling everything I can. And I, so I think there's two sets of people. The DGAFs, as I call them, they're going to be there. And maybe three sets, because there's also the people who were probably trying to be careful and would have been, you know, I don't know if I'm going, but maybe they've gotten COVID and they've recovered from it. And the science is pretty solid that if you've had it and recovered, you have months of safe immunity, not maybe what a vaccine's going to give you, but you, the incidences of repeat infection that we've seen in the world are very small relative to the millions and tens of millions of cases. So the, the theory out there and all the science is that if you get it and you recover, you're safe for a certain number of months. I mean, we, we can't know if it's a year or 10 years because 10 years haven't passed yet since COVID appeared. It's only one. So we have to find out. Time will have to pass to see how long natural immunity lasts and how long vaccinated immunity lasts. They won't know that until people have been vaccinated to see. They'll be following you to see if you get infected. And that's how they'll learn how long the vaccine lasts and how long the natural does. But anybody that's had it, you know, probably if, I, if I'd had it, caught it and had it, I would be out there all the time now because I would feel relatively safe based on the science. But then the, the groups like me that haven't had it, once we're vaccinated, I'm, I'm going. I'm, man, I, yeah, Susie and I haven't been spending any money. We haven't gone to casinos. We haven't gone to bars. We haven't gone to restaurants. We haven't gone bowling. We haven't had any fun, no traveling. We're ready to go out there and support the businesses that have been crushed by this goddamn pandemic, and we want to support them, have some fun ourselves, and get this world going again as soon as it's possible. So I think <clears throat> that I think there's a good chance that, and it's Vegas. It's not like you're asking to go to, you know, what I won't even name any other city. You're going to Vegas. So I really think that there's a good chance the USBC will have a heck of a turnout assuming that the logistics of vaccination go the way it looks like they're going to go, or hopefully will go. And I would not surprise me at all that for them to get, I think they have room for about 9,000 teams going through July 18th and 11,000 or so, if they go all the way to July 31st, uh, something like that. And pardon me, it wouldn't surprise me at all if we get in that range, because I mean, I think people are desperate for the one bad thing is there's a lot of people who might economically not be able to afford it because of lost jobs and businesses, et cetera. And there's people in these States that are completely locked down, you know, Washington, I think is again, right. California, they're not even bowling and maybe they, who knows when they're going to be able to bowl. God, frustration, huh? Just tragic for, you know, centers may not even, I mean, can you even bowl if your center doesn't survive? I mean, it's, it's depressing and sad and just, Oh, it's just, it just, when you think about it, it just makes you want to cry if you're a serious bowler. And I feel so bad for, and I have friends in Dane County here who run centers and we've been closed and open and closed and open and are limited open now. And they're struggling to survive here. 
So I know what it's like um, with close friends and just praying to get through and as many survive as possible. And, and if those people can get back on the lanes, and I think he could see a big open championship. So I'm sure hoping for it. I mean, you're, you're out there. Things are pretty close still again, aren't they out there? Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's touch and go. I, I mean, Vegas definitely is. I mean, I haven't, um, I was up there in June doing some things or July and I won't be back until it's closer to normal. It just, it wasn't the same. Not, a, not a lot of people, and just not um, not Vegas like you think it is, I guess is the best way to right. put it. And and um, and I guess I would say too, this is going to be one of those years. I think if if it happens like you say, where people are just going to be so happy to go, you won't be hearing a lot about the shot and and how tough it was, or how easy it was, or how it was better to go early or late, or how this darn team always does. Good, you know, like these stacked teams that right. people complain. You won't hear any complaining. People will just be happy to get out and bowl. And and the fact that it is downstairs and upstairs and oh they you know that's an eagle with an at you know an asterisk you know all this stuff that in a normal quote-unquote normal year you'd have people complaining or or talking about but this year you won't hear any of that absolutely i've been preaching the big word i've been preaching to people is perspective when they start complaining about you know the which team got picked for the college football playoff and you know, my parents, can't, the parents can't go see, you know, the game at Camp Randall here where the Badgers play. No parents have been allowed in any games all year. I'm like, have perspective. There's people out there that have died that are long haulers with COVID who've got all kinds of, you know, problems, even though they didn't die, that are probably going to be with them for life. There's people losing their jobs, losing their businesses, losing their homes, getting evicted. Please, out of all of this, I'm going to try really hard the next time I leave a solid eight when I'm bowling to have perspective. Um, you know, I've got a lot of it because I'm not any good anymore. I'm almost 60, but even more perspective that just be thankful that I'm healthy, that I'm bowling, that I get to go on and play a slot machine and have a beer and see my friends and remember all the people who've lost so much through all of this, including most notably 300 and some thousand people who have died. And by the time the, vaccinations are fully out there it's probably going to be 400,000 hopefully not too much more um so the perspective and you know don't complain that you know this team did good like you just said it all and i i back you 100 percent. just enjoy the ability to get back to living life and having some fun and then i guess the final thing let's hit on the usbc side of things was a big decision that came out earlier this month in december believe or maybe it was late november was regarding team usa head coach rod ross stepping down i mean probably i mean i don't want to say it's to be expected but i mean it's something you you could have it probably wasn't expected i mean unless you're you're close to the team in the situation but has there been anyone on your radar or anyone who you're thinking they're looking towards or 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 was this i guess maybe you could answer was it something that was expected and, and were there kind of rumblings around the team that it was happening I had heard nothing about this and, uh, and, you know, no rumblings at all. And I'm probably the most connected to rumor mills of anybody in, in bowling. Um, and, uh, uh, but it doesn't surprise me because Rod is up there and he served many years. And I know I'm looking forward to when I'm his age, I'm going to be looking forward to retire. And I'm, I'm not working till I'm like 70. Not that, you know, being a bowling coach is a little more fun than being a newspaper guy who gets up at 3 a.m. But, um, more power to him. He's done fabulous work as the coach. All the tributes to him were, you know, said everything that needs to be said. You can go watch those on YouTube, the Bull TV YouTube channel. And, you know, he knew, obviously, there isn't going to probably be international competition, at least until late 2021, maybe 2022, because a lot of the other countries of the world are not going to get vaccinated as fast as the U.S. Um, so it's hard to say when we'll be back to that. So he's probably looking at you know, if I'm going to coach my team again, it's going to be another year. And at some point I'm going to ride off into the sunset. I haven't talked to him. Um, I'm just, you know, speculating based on things people said in it. He deserves to relax and have a good time in retirement. Um, and he probably, you know, USBC saves money that he's retired and not collecting salary. If he wasn't furloughed, I don't honestly know. There was no team to say maybe he was even furloughed in all this time. Um, and then the big issue obviously going forward is, Who's going to replace him? Well, I would tell you that I don't think I wouldn't look for a replacement to be named, especially with Team USA trials canceled. 
there's no reason to name a replacement for months until we're going to see that there's going to be some competition. So they can take their time deciding between, you know, Mark Baker and Mike Jasna and Brian O'Keefe and Mike Shady and the hundred other Kim Kearney, whoever they have in mind um, and who they're going to choose. They have to USBC has all the time in the world to make that choice and you know do their due diligence and maybe they even have but someone picked out who knows uh but there's no hurry on it because i wouldn't expect to see team usa in any competition till the fall or, or next winter at the earliest so i'm going to throw a name out there and it, it's a, it's an interesting name I, I had a few when um when i was thinking about this topic the one that came right to mind was was brian o'keefe and uh, and I thought he'd be a perfect fit since he's done you know done stuff down there already as as a coach. But the name that recently I was thinking more was was Chris Barnes, someone who would yes. be interested in taking over that program and being named someone. He's already a Texas native. There wouldn't be a lot for him to get used to. He could uh, you know more than likely with with the assistant coaches just slide right in, and it would be a fairly seamless transition. Right, and uh, obviously he's a name that came up when I started asking around and um, without a doubt, and he's more free to do that. I, the one question I would have about someone like Kim Kearney or, or Brian O'Keefe or any other college coach is will their colleges, if they want to keep their jobs as college coaches, and that would be up to them, obviously would their colleges say, Oh yeah, go take two weeks to go off to team trials in the middle of the college bowling season. You know, maybe the athletic director is going to be like, eh, I don't know about that. So, that's something that they would have to work out. But obviously if not, maybe you quit the school and take the job full time at team USA. I'm not sure how all that works, but Barnes is certainly a big name. And I mean, I saw this whole scenario where Baker and Barnes could sort of be, you know, I don't know if they'd be co-coaches or head coach and assistant because Chris was sort of an assistant partner to Mark Baker when they did their camps and that, and they've worked together. Um, Chris is basically Mark's, most famous pupil, I, I think he would would say without a doubt. And um, I think that would be very interesting. And maybe if Chris wasn't the head coach, he would have more freedom to bowl because that guy's 50 now. Remember last year he was 50. And he's got to be probably chomping at the bit to bowl two tours and win a lot of stuff here for the next couple of years. I mean, I would certainly see him as one of the guys that would be dominating if he went out, you know, the PBA 50 tour gets started again. So, if he's still got competitive juices he wants to fulfill, then maybe an assistant position under Mark would be logical or something. I mean, I don't know. We, we didn't get any hear anything at all from USBC on any, any plans going forward. So, and I haven't even heard any, you know, any rumblings or anything either. So if they're doing anything, everybody's keeping it pretty quiet, but yeah, that, without a doubt, those are two, two big names there for sure. And I'm, you know, Brian officially is the junior team USA coach right now. So I, maybe that would tell you that, um, Lindenwood is, uh, or Lindenwood, McKendry is both in St. Louis area. Uh, McKendry is happy or fine with him and maybe they would be, be cool with him being the, the team USA head coach. Well, and I think you're on to things too. Why why would you name someone if you probably won't have a competition until late next year or maybe even the following year? So makes sense to not get out ahead of make it make an announcement when you don't need to. But um, moving on to number the, the you know the second biggest topic I guess of of 2020, we just lumped in the PBA. We we put the PBA non pandemic stuff you know from Belmo winning his sixth Player of the Year to. Uh, EJ Tackett's huge contract to the PBA League, adding uh, prof- two professional uh, PWBA teams. So we threw those in. So I guess let's begin with you know with the most recent news of Belmo, you know, winning his sixth P- uh, PBA Player of the Year, and sounding like he his goal is to get to seven and then eight if things go according to uh, his storybook ending to his uh, his next two years. Yeah, if if you read what I wrote after he got uh, got it announced and what he said, um, I the most interesting thing I found is when we were following along with him and he was going after the PBA record of ten and Don Carter's historical record of eleven majors, he refused to get ahead of himself. Stayed in the moment. I don't know how I'm going to feel when I get there. I got to take it one at a time. And all the old cliches and it got to be a running joke between us. Every time he'd win one, I'd ask him the same questions and he'd laugh and give me the same answers. And then he finally got 
to that. And then he started talking about how he would like to set the bar as high as possible, maybe 15, 20, who knows, you know, the guy wins two or three every year. You know, he, I'm not going to hold any limits on him. Um, I think you'd be foolish to to say he's not going to get to any number, but then we have Tiger Woods too. And who didn't think he was going to beat Jack's record. And then he couldn't win any again and he got health problems and et cetera. So you can't, say he wouldn't but he you know he might never get 14 but then what was interesting then is when it came to winning this and i did the big long interview when he got back to australia in october for 11thframe.com i talked to him for it was it was an hour and a half i think we were on the phone while he was in his quarantine at his hotel in australia and he was very expansive talking about um you know his legacy and getting to walter ray's seven we were assuming then that he was going to get six which he did um and he was very, uh, you know, appreciative of talking about putting his name with Earl and what that meant. And, but in getting to Walter seven and, and eight and not saying, Oh, I'm not going to, but, but actually talking about it and then did again in the interview on flow bowling when the announcement was made last week. And it's just find that to be interesting that he's opened up and is willing to sort of not be false modest, not have false modesty and to talk about how great he is in you know not a not a bragger way but but just to to honestly embrace the possibilities he has to set numbers that would really eliminate any debate that we might actually have a good goat that only the haters could debate and the one thing he'll probably never get is Walter Ray's 47 titles but if he gets eight or nine bowlers of the year and 15 to 20 majors and all the other stuff he's done as much as I think Walter is, you know, the greatest of, of the, you know, the post Don Carter, Dick Weber era in the Earl era, it's like, boy, it's it'd be hard to argue against Belmo on and that. And, and, you know, I mean, the 47 will always be there and I don't think Belmo will bowl enough to get those, but, but boy, if he gets those, those bowlers of the year and majors, what do you think? I mean, would, would you hesitate to call Belmo the goat? I, and I don't mean to, so that doesn't mean any slighting of, of Walter either. Yeah, that's such. A, that's going to be a, a question that's debated over over a beverage for a lot of people. I think because it's such a hard. It, whenever you cross eras, it's always there's always different things you have to take into consideration. I mean, I I feel like the one thing I'm hearing out of Belmo when he does these interviews, whether in in print or even in uh, in podcast form or, or video form, however, is he's when he, he's going to be he's not going to be coming over here to bowl when he feels he can't win every tournament. Now I feel he yep, feels he yep, can win he, every tournament. Yep. And when he feels he can't, he won't. He may still come over for the majors, but he won't be coming over here and bowling all the time. Right. I would bet, I would make a bet with almost anyone based on the long inter, many long interviews I've had with him and reading between the lines on what he said and sort of being a little bit of psychoanalysis here that let's say he were to win player of the year two times in the next three years and get to eight player of the years and maybe win three or four more majors and get to like 17. It would not surprise me at all if he scaled way back. And, and once he got those two records and basically came over for the majors and the world series, and that was about it, depending how the schedule works and not the back and forth. Um, his dedication is seen in that flow interview when he got the player of the year, where he said, I'm coming over here for the whole segment of the tour. He's going to be in the U S and not go home for probably four or five months here to start the year because of the quarantine, the two week quarantine over there. It's such a hassle. So he's still dedicated as heck, but once he gets those goals, wouldn't be surprised at all to see him scale whale back focus on his, his kids will be older. You know, they might be playing soccer or whatever the heck they do and, and be a dad more than, than he's able to do with the, you know, that's, that's really, when you, you talk about goat, he's doing something that setting records that this right now in the same realm as Walter and Earl, but Walter and Earl didn't have to travel 25 hours to start a tour segment, you know, and weren't completely away from their families for months at a time or weeks at a time. You have to factor that in there. The, the, what he goes through to do this is extraordinary. And um, I mean, I, it's just, it's amazing. I never thought when he got two or three, I would have bet the world against him getting six or more just based on how much grind it is to, to go back and forth across the globe like he does. 
And then another thing that you did, uh, and again, everyone can read this at 11thframe.com, you did a very long interview with EJ Tackett regarding his 10-year deal with Motive, which um, which <laughs> it was very interesting to read, and I'm guessing it also gave you a, a little bit of a, a more of a light into EJ and how he ticks and, and what his thoughts and, and perspective on bowling and on everything is as well. Yeah, I, I love EJ because he is a guy who he's like transparent to me. Um, he never, he always seems to show you what he feels and to answer your questions directly with no hesitation. Um, and I totally respect him. I think he's the best one-handed bowler in the world. No offense to Bill O'Neill, Sean Rash, Chris Prather. Um, you know, EJ's got 13 titles already and with a little better fortune on TV, he could have 20 already. Um, he's the guy that could get to 47, I think. Um, if he, if there's enough tournaments to bowl. Um, and he's had some of the most crushing disappointment disappointments. And I've seen a couple of them in person, um, at tournaments where I attended to cover and, no matter what happens to him, he gets, he doesn't fry. He, well, locker room fry, but he congratulates the other guy. He's a good sport about it. He answers all the questions afterwards that lost to Gary Faulkner in the world championship. I was there and he gave such a emotional, but solid interview. Um, you know, despite the pain, he answered the questions and, and sucked it up. And I mean, I had so much respect for him being in some a, a somewhat of a competitor myself and going through that on the lower level that I've been through. And I was so impressed by it. And I've always been impressed. And when he wins, he's a gracious winner. Um, everyone seems to like him. He has rivalries with like Belmo without it being, you know, they can be buddies and, and yet go at it tooth and nail. And, and he's just an interesting guy and he has so much talent and, he wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me if he won eight tournaments in a year, one year, that's how good I think he is. And he's went through all the disappointments he's had, you know, talking about how many huge games he's lost with on TV and the majors he's lost. And, you know, he could, it's mind boggling to think that he has 13 titles and two majors. And it's almost like, boy, it's careers disappointing in that only because he's had so many other opportunities that just escaped him a couple because he didn't bowl well, but so many that he, other guys just, it's like he's had so many guys shoot huge games against him on TV when he's bowled pretty good. It's, it's when you go through that, when I was doing the notes for that interview, I was like, Oh my God, how does this guy keep getting off the mat? You know, he's like, I don't want to say the Buffalo bills, but you know, the, just a guy that's there all the time and has said so many just horrifying, brutal defeats. And yet is the next week he's up there again. And he just, I have so much respect for people that fight through that. And, you know, maybe, maybe Phil Nicholson is sort of a way to look at EJ, you know, and Belmo's tiger and Phil always got off the mat and kept fighting and, you know, created a great career. And, you know, I asked him, I interviewed EJ, do you ever wish Belmo wasn't around and that you, you know, comparing him to Phil and said, what would you might've won? He goes, without Belmo, maybe I wouldn't have been as good, you know? And that's what a great answer and what a true answer. Very much so, and he's a guy too who bowls everything. I I believe it was on the Storm Collegiate Spotlight podcast interview I did maybe a couple of weeks ago with Sydney Brummett, who's in Indiana where EJ is, and she's saying how um, she's preparing for the upcoming uh, ladies tour, and she said, um, "Well, I have a lot of uh, you know a lot of guys come out and bowl these tournaments," and and she's like, "Well, it's EJ and his brother and." She's named, and so he's running out and bowling these little, you know, what I would consider little for, for a guy like him, you know, $500,000, $750 sweepers. He's competing in those on on weekend events, too, with all the, the weekend warriors like, uh, you know, like yourself when you were back bowling more things. So he bowls, I think. Yep. Anytime he can shoe up, he's out there bowling. And that's why I think when I say he's a guy I could see making a run at Walter Ray's 47 is that he's already at 13. He's only in his twenties. He's got years to do it and the talent, but he also has the love of the game. I don't see him being the guy that burns out and quits. Um, maybe, you know, who knows what could happen? You know, so many things happen, injuries and that, you know, all the force he puts into the game for a relatively small guy. Yeah. Who, who knows? 
but but he, he, he as you said he loved the game so much you know and you know Anthony Simonson's another guy I could see doing that being so young and having so many titles already so there are other people but whenever I think of who someone asked me who could catch Walter I always point at EJ because he's already got you know almost a third of the way there and and is in contention you know, so often. And man, if things ever click for him where he gets some breaks on TV, watch out. I tell you, he could win six, eight tournaments in a year. And let's end uh, end quickly then, Jeff, uh, Jeff, on the PBA League had to be moved from Portland, Maine down to uh, rural uh, DC area. And this was the first year they added two women's teams to the to the event and, and just kind of your overall impressions on, on, I guess, I, I mean, my opinion, they, they made the best of a, a not so good situation with the, the whole COVID-19 thing, but, but they did manage to get the PBA league in. Yeah. And I, I'm glad they did. Obviously not having it at, um, at Bayside, it was a tough thing and we certainly would want that, but um, you know, that that's what had to happen this year and you know, too bad for that. But um It'll be back there next year, I'm sure, with the vaccines and everything. And Charlie Mitchell will put out the red carpet for him, and the world will be right again in that way. But having those women in there, that turned out better than what I thought it would. It really added a little flavor to it, the guys against the girls, you know, type of thing. And I, I had a lot of fun as a fan watching. I enjoyed the PBA League sitting here watching in my living room all those those uh, those nights in a row and in the fall. And uh, I thought it came off really good, and I know – Collie and Tom decided to have the women back, but maybe not on teams next year, I think is what they've already announced. Um, and I, personally, I didn't even think I had them in there. I, I liked having them all on a team and having, so, I mean, it's their, it's their baby. They can do with it what they want, but I liked the guys and the gals kind of little side action there that, that had, and I, I mean, I, I have, they can, PBA can do whatever they want with their PBA league and their tournaments. It's a private business. I don't ever, you know, I'm not one of these guys say, you can't do that. You know, that's wrong or whatever. It's their money. They're putting it up. If they want to run it that way, they can run it. As a fan, I would have, if they're going to have women in there, I would like to see them have, have them on their own team, just, just for the little guys against the gals fun of it. But it was great to have them in there. I enjoyed the PBA league this year. Imagine how much fun that would have been if it had been at Bayside with the fans. <laughs> I know. Right. And, and that was where too, where there had been no, bo- like, there still hasn't been much bowling, but there was bowling. There hadn't been bowling on TV in so long, aside from some reruns on on Fox, you know, Fox Sports One and everything. So I think people just, and even the players, had to feel like they wanted to get out and and do some competing as well, and and they like getting together. And probably a lot of them haven't seen each other either. So I think it was a good event, and like you said, um, made the best out of the situation that we could. Well, Jeff, so that's the top uh, five through five through two. Let's um, let's take a break right there and we'll get back in the next podcast and we'll, t- we'll talk all pandemic angles as the number one story of 2020. So much stuff to hit on with the pandemic. So that'll be in our next podcast so people can listen to that. But um, Jeff, thanks for your time regarding first off regarding right now, what we've done five through uh, <laughs> two, I hope people uh, enjoyed it and, and it helps us to, you know what we can prepare for in 2021. But again, go to 11thframe.com. Jeff goes into a lot more detail on all the things we discussed uh, in this uh, in this podcast. You can go there and sign up, and it's uh, it's I, it's not even the price of a cup of coffee for a month. So I don't know how anyone <laughs> who's a bowler can't even you know can't even and go and subscribe and get caught up uh, and uh, and what, read some of the great content you're putting out there. So uh, Jeff, we will um, we're gonna. Do, do number one, but check that one out coming up uh, on the next podcast. All right. Well, thanks for having me on, Tim. Greatly appreciate it.